So yesterday I was talking about USC and some of the big-time matchups they've had with Oregon on the gridiron in past years. And I got to thinking, what are the best ones? Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked on Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster and lifelong Oregon Ducks fan. Thanks for making this your first listen or your first view if you are watching on YouTube every day. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks every weekday. Like, comment, subscribe wherever you are listening to or watching the show. Thank you for doing that, and thank you to those of you who have done that. And boy, I, uh, I'm i a fan of going down memory lane, just kind of generally speaking. I have a lot of fond memories of Oregon football games, Saturday nights in the fall on ABC, Brent Musburger, Kirk Street on the call. I mean, just all sorts of fantastic moments. By the way, I think I keep forgetting to shout out Oregon women's golf, who lost in the national championship match to Stanford three to two. You send out five players and if you win, you get a full point tie, you get a half point, but they lost three to two. Had a heck of a season. Finished the year ranked second in the country. They got all the way to the championship match. They played some phenomenal golf, and Stanford was just you know ever so slightly better. But uh, one one heck of a season for the Lady Ducks out on the links. As I record this, the men are, I believe, still competing at the uh, the championships down in uh, Scottsdale at Greyhawk Golf Club. So let's switch back over to uh, a different kind of grass to play on artificial turf. That is and. Look at the the rich history of Oregon and USC football. And I, I think that when you talk about the biggest games that these two teams ha- have played over the years, your mind always jumps to 2009, right? I mean, that, that was the first big one. But there was one even before that, right? I think that, you know, looking at the last 20 years or so, the biggest Oregon-USC games are some of my favorites. And we're just going to go through all of them. This is, you know, uh, this first segment here today on the show pure nostalgia and if you're into that then you're in for a good time because i'm all about it but do we remember october 27 2007 at Autzen stadium usc's quarterback was a guy by the name of john david booty and that was his real name for those of you who didn't know oregon's quarterback was one dennis dixon and this was in the pre-chip mike bilotti era and the ducks had a game ceiling interception to win 24 to 17 and that was i think one of the first times that, that i can really remember in my life i'm 24 so i'm a little bit younger but that was the first time where oregon beat usc in my life and it was a really really big deal because usc was still very much in the the midst of that dynasty run where they were the the team to beat in the west coast and beating usc that day was a, a really really big thing great crowd at Autzen and um, I remember those old uh, FSN logos or not logos, uh, score bugs as well. You know, it had the the little yellow circle around whichever team had the ball It had their name and score, you know, it was up at the top. And then that interception took place and then the yellow thing shifted over to Oregon. And then we won the game. I, I can't remember who made that interception. Drop it in the YouTube comments if if you know. But that was uh, that was that was one of many, many great games. Uh, but the, the biggest one, definitely the biggest one. I will talk about several and which was my favorite and what the implications of all these have sort of been, how that ties into the future. 
that's where we're going with this segment. But uh, the biggest one was 2009. 47 to 20. Halloween night. Blackout at Autzen Stadium. My brother and a friend of his were there. I was at home watching because I'd been trick-or-treating with, with some friends. We came back home and we were we were sorting candy. We were trading candy just uh, just on our, our basement living room floor watching the game. And oh my gosh, that was one heck of a night. And that moment, it was even bigger than the game because of how it transpired. USC was still really good, but Oregon was also very good. And LaMichael James burst onto the scene and he was just incredible absolutely incredible he of course had been forced into action because Legarrette punched a Boise State player but that season turned around in a big way when Oregon won that game really I think the trajectory of the program did because here was USC this vaunted college football powerhouse and they were built on the defensive side of the ball and here was this head coach from New Hampshire originally who came over and was running in the shotgun all the time and he put up 47 points and just ran it down their throats it was so awesome you know my favorite moment of that game of which there were you know a lot of great ones one of my favorites what probably my favorite moment of that particular game was at the end of the third quarter the ducks had I want to say like a 10-ish point lead, maybe 14-point lead. There's three seconds left in the quarter right after Oregon had gotten a first down in the red zone. Now, most coaches, traditional, conventional coaches, like Pete Carroll, for instance, would have said, all right, let's go to the fourth, switch ends, you know, let the let the quarter run out. That's not what Chip was about. If you watch the, the highlights of that game back, which is a lot of fun, and if you haven't done it before, I highly recommend it. It's a good time. You can see Chip Kelly on the sideline, and he wants them to go, go, go. He didn't want to wait until the fourth quarter to score that touchdown. He wanted to score it right then and there. And so we got the snap off before the quarter ended, pounded it in, and went into the fourth quarter having just put up another touchdown on those big-time USC defenses that had Taylor Mays in the secondary. And I don't even remember all the players. I don't know if that was Ray Malaluga or not. I think that might have been a, a little bit earlier. But that that game, I think, propelled Oregon onto the national stage as much as any singular regular season game that you can point to in the last 15 years because it wasn't just a win. It was a trouncing. I mean, it's 47-20. to 20. Oregon was running the ball at will on USC. We didn't have the athletes that USC did at the time. It wasn't even close. USC had big-time NFL-caliber players. None of those Oregon offensive linemen ended up becoming a, a Panay Sewell or a Hronis Grasso or uh, a Tyrell Crosby sort of sort of guy. It just That's not what they were made of, but Chip was just doing stuff that Pete was completely unprepared for, and, oh, man, that was, that was a truly grand and glorious night, and Otson was popping absolutely popping the all black on halloween there were some great signs in the student section as well some of which i you know the ones i remember are not ones that i can repeat here because we're a g-rated show here at the locked on podcast network but man that was that was just a big big time game these are the sorts of games i want to get back to right i mean when i'm sitting here saying I want Oregon to play USC every year. It's because I want moments like these. I mean, these are some of, at least for me, 
the most powerful memories of my entire childhood, of which I have very fond memories. These ones are right there. Oregon beating USC 47-20 at Autzen Stadium. That was that was one that sticks out because it was not what we expected. I mean, there was a, obviously a chance Oregon could win. We were at home. I think we were ranked 10th, and USC was 5th at the time. But nobody saw 47-20 coming, and that was a statement game. The following year had my favorite moment in Oregon football history, personally, as a fan. I'll tell you what that is after I remind you our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. And no, I did not forget. Go Mariners. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering information from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. Bet Online, where the game starts. 2010, the undefeated regular season, that close to a national championship game. We remember how it ended. But do you remember exactly how it got there? Because it was not always a blowout the way it was against a Washington State at the time. Or, you know, the final score of that Washington game that year ended up not being close. The final score of this one ended up not being particularly close. But 2010, the birth of the kind of Storm LA movement. You go all white, Stormtrooper look. I absolutely loved i mean that sort of stuff it just felt big and one of the reasons it felt big watching it on tv is because he had brent musburger on the call he does that better than anybody in the history of college football i'm willing to accept keith jackson for that answer i'm partial towards brent but if you're a keith jackson fan i'm not gonna sit on here and and harp on you real bad for for that particular take but 53 to 32 the final score in 2010 and it has that game, my singular favorite moment in Oregon football history, not the outcome, not a particular touchdown. The play didn't even result in a touchdown. But, you know, I was talking about yeah, how the, that 2009 game was sort of even bigger than the game. The moment that that sticks out to me the most from the entire Chip Kelly era and that game in particular is with 32 seconds left. Oregon had the lead and the ball. We were inside our own five. We just picked off Matt Barkley. I'm pretty sure it was Cliff Harris, who, man, that guy was good. And the best moment, the best moment that I've ever seen on TV for Oregon football, even better, in my opinion, than the Jeff Mail two-point conversion, which no doubt was thrilling, is with 32 seconds left, Kirk Herbstreet says to Brent Musburger, there's no way Chip Kelly has the audacity 32 seconds left inside his own five to try and score again, does he? And then we go play action four verticals, hit Josh Huff, and we're out near midfield in the blink of an eye. And Brent and Kirk were beside themselves. They could not believe what they are seeing. And I say that's my favorite moment because it encapsulates everything that made the Chip Kelly era so special. Is he did not care what you thought he didn't care what was conventional Oregon didn't care what was conventional we were rolling out all the uniform combinations kind of before everybody else that was a big big deal and we just did it anyway regardless of what people said and that moment is so great Kirk's voice literally cracks as he is yelling in shock when he said that we were just coming down the field 
Darren Thomas ended up fumbling. We went into the half and then won the game, you know, had an exclamation point touchdown as well, where kind of similar to 2009, the end of that third quarter, it was, you know, sort of uh, sending a message from, from Chip Kelly to the other sideline and such. But that's my favorite moment because everything that was special about that time when Oregon football really got put on the map is just perfectly represented in the situation, the play call, the execution, and the reaction of the national TV broadcasters who were the best in the business. Brent and Kirk, there's no better tandem out there. I like Chris Fowler. He's not Brent Musburger because nobody is. Uh, another great USC game. Uh, let's skip over 2011, shall we? Uh, that's that's not one that we want to remember. But um, 2012 was pretty fun. And it was a little bit of a Big 12 game, <laughs> so to speak. I'd be surprised if any Oregon-USC games look like this one in the coming years. But 62-51 to 51 the final. Kenyon Barner went for 321 yards and five touchdowns. <laughs> like. How's that? I don't know. I don't know how that's real. I really don't. That is the most absurd stat line ever. Not a great day for Nick Aliotti, but Chip had a good one up there uh, calling plays or down there, I should say, in, in the Coliseum. And if you talk to USC people or ask them about that game, they, they still have, you know, kind of an eye roll memory of like, oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> 321 yards, five touchdowns. Good fantasy day. Really, really, really good fantasy day. Um, so my favorite moment overall between Oregon and USC in my lifetime was that that moment at the end of the half in 2010. But my favorite game w- was 2009 because that was when Oregon really catapulted themselves onto the national stage. And I don't know if you can point to another regular season game that gave Oregon the sort of national credibility that we're accustomed to them having now than that particular game. You smack Pete Carroll's USC defense around for 47 points, and you beat them by 27, just about four touchdowns, you you, you turned some heads, and we ran them out of Austin Stadium, and that was a really, really good day. So uh, I, I talk about these games for a couple of reasons. Number one, who doesn't love a trip down memory lane when the memories are super fun? But the other reason that that I wanted to go through these and bring these up is People were paying attention to these games in Oregon and USC because of these particular games that I've talked about and including the one that that we don't want to talk about in 2011. Those are the sorts of moments where you get a national audience looking at your game. There are nationally televised games, but then there are ones where you can kind of sense, all right, everybody's watching this right now. And this is where the attention of the college football world is. I want Oregon to be able to get back to that. And you can't do that if USC isn't a perennial Pac-12 contender. And if you think that I'm wrong on this, go ask any fans from the South or from the East Coast and ask them about West Coast football or West Coast teams that they know anything about. It's Oregon and it's USC. Maybe a little bit of Utah, right? But that's more of a recent trend, whereas before they were a respectable, solid, consistent team. Now they've shown they, they can play with the big boys, get to... Uh, you know, the brink of getting in the college football playoff, contend with Ohio State in one of the great Rose Bowls we've seen in the last decade, of which there have been uh, quite a few. Oregon and USC are the biggest are, are the biggest brands out West, and it's really not particularly close. I, I mean, having games like that and, and having a reputation like that for those two programs, that's how you get a guy like Seven McGee, who grew up in New York, by the way. He wanted to be an Oregon Duck. 
And now he is. He grew up idolizing DeAnthony Thomas. You remember him? He was pretty good at football. He was also pretty fast, but he was also a very good football player. I mean, you don't have that sort of national attention unless you have a matchup that is drawing eyeballs from all over the country. And nothing does that better than Oregon, USC. I want those games to come back, right? Go back to what I said yesterday about yesterday on the show about building a profile with, with big-time games. You have to build up your resume, but you also have to build up your brand as a school, you go in these games, you win. It starts to turn heads. Recruits go, whoa, it, they, they just be hooked. Like that was an awesome game. That was an awesome environment. You turn on, you see Hudson stadium going nuts as Oregon runs for what? Four or 500 yards or whatever it was in 2009. Masoli and Michael are just slicing and dicing through the Trojan defense. That is going to get some attention, and it did, and I think it's a big reason why Oregon has grown. Now, would the Ducks have grown into a national brand if USC never existed? Yeah, probably if they had hired Chip Kelly and whatnot, but do I think that that growth and ascension to a top-tier college football program was aided by the fact that you had these sorts of games that everybody was watching, everybody wanted to see, and they wanted to be you know, like Oregon because they were fast and they had flashy uniforms and everything? Yeah, I I think it really was. And you don't have to like the idea of USC being back or the idea of, you know, needing another school in order to be majorly relevant on the national stage. But that's just the way it is. People know USC, people know Oregon, and they will want to watch that matchup on the East Coast and down in the South. Whereas, you know, even in Oregon, Stanford is like, it's not going to be quite as powerful. It can still be really good, but but it's not the same, right? The, the power and the, the prowess of USC is just different. So Quincy Garrier is back for Oregon basketball, which he announced recently, which is funny because I had already assumed previously that he was going to be back. And Keyshawn Bartholomew, the guard who transferred in from Colorado, said he wanted to come and play with him. So I didn't even know this was a thing. I hadn't read or heard about it anywhere, but it's now official. Quincy Garrier is returning to Syracuse transfer, averaged 10 points a game a season ago, five and a half boards, 42% field goal, 33% from beyond the arc, 64% at the line. I wish we could just make free throws at a better clip. Every time I talk about last year's stats for an individual player, nobody's making free throws, at least not at the level that, that they should. But, you know, when, when I saw this, I thought it's always good to learn from your mistakes, right? As parents, you have to, I'm not a parent, but as parents, you have to let your kids make some mistakes sometimes because they have to learn from, them. they have to go through certain things, but something else that you want your kids to do is to learn from other people's mistakes. And I think Quincy Garrier has done that because the reason that I say he's officially coming back is he was testing the NBA draft waters, but he is going to come back to Oregon. And he was, you know, in those one, one of those in-between phases where he's uh, declaring, but not fully declaring, keeping his eligibility. That, that's an option that the players have. And I think he's making the right call here because he does have uh, the size to be in the NBA. But what I say, his game is at a place where he's ready to go to the pro level. I would say no. And we've seen this in the past with other Oregon basketball players like Lewis King and Kenny Wooten most prominently come to mind where they leave before they are fully ready. And so as a result, their pro careers don't pan out the way they might have if they'd stayed in college another year or two in order to develop their all around game. Because 
you know, Quincy Gary is a good college player, but right now is he ready to become an NBA rotational player? I don't think he's quite there. I don't think he's ever going to be a starter in the league, but could he be a player off the bench who, you know, gives you some spot starts and has some nice games? Yeah, I think so. He's not a Dylan Brooks caliber player, but I think he could one day turn into that. But I just think when you look at the guys in the past who have gone out early, the only one who, you know, has kind of worked out was Troy Brown Jr., who, you know, really underwhelmed after being a five-star at Oregon. By the way, I think Bull Bull kind of fits into this category as well. Not not exactly the same because there's an injury component to, to why he hasn't panned out in the NBA, but part of it is that he just isn't good enough to see the floor. And, you know, Troy Brown came to Oregon as a five-star, and he was really underwhelming statistically. And when you watch the games and one of the teams he was on, uh, I think the team he was on missed the tournament. That sounds that sounds right. I m- might not be correct. You can hop in the comments and correct me below here if you're listening on YouTube or on podcast. But Troy Brown was a guy who averaged 10 points a game his second season with Washington, which was way better than I thought he would ever be. But since then, it's kind of worth noting, not kind of, it is worth noting, his playing time has diminished rapidly over the last few seasons. And now it sort of looks like what I thought when he left, which is, I, I don't know if he's physically ready to go to the NBA. I mean, I think Brown had a couple more traits that made him a first-round pick of, of the Wizards and than, than Quincy Garrier has. But I, I just think you look at, you know, the even look at the recent football players, right? Mikhail Wright left early, wasn't quite ready, Did, would have benefited from another year. Devin Williams for football as well. Now, there were some uh, other concerns as to why he or other reasons, I should say, as to why he went to the professional level before he you know, was maybe ready. But I think it's even worse in basketball than, than it is in football because of the one and done. And you see guys who just want to go to college, dip their toe in the water, turn around and then leave. And it just doesn't it doesn't pan out uh, the way that they often hope it will. Occasionally it does. But there are far more examples of guys who left early and were never able to carve out consistent roles for themselves and have solid careers the way they had the potential to do in the NBA than in football, because in football, you're required to stay for three years. So I think Gary is making the right call here. Um, I, I think his numbers should be around the same from a, a points and rebounds perspective. I think his percentages could go up, right? 42% field goal, 33% three-point, and 64% at the line. I would like to see him get over 70% at the charity stripe, mid, maybe high 40s from the floor and, and mid 30s from beyond the arc as well. I think he's capable of doing that. He you know, kind of struggled the first half of the year, came on strong at, at the end, but I like his length defensively. Thought he did some nice things at that end of the court. He, he is certainly going to be Oregon's starting, for, starting small forward, and he should be. Um, the fact that he tested the waters means that he's, probably not going to use his two remaining years of eligibility and he'll just go with the one but i'm just he's got two if he wants them this will be his third year of college basketball but one of the ones was uh 2020 and 2021 so he can get a, a free year if he wants because of covid so i think that's what would be best for him depending on how he progresses this year maybe his draft stock is you know kind of high and trending up by the end of the season if he pops the way that that we hope he will but I think he's making the right call here, and I'm glad to see that he's not fallen victim to the the lures of of going pro right now, and instead waiting for for his game to you know re- refine a little bit more so that he can be a more well rounded and complete player by the time he gets to the NBA. 
Thanks for making this your first listen. Go make Locked On Pac-12 your second listen or view of the day where I'm talking about all things about the Conference of Champions. I appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.